I'm starting to come to Tampa frequent enough that I'm starting to recognize some people, and that's, that's exciting. So um, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord here and, and just, uh, uh, just, just call upon Him, and then we'll get into some word and some, some, some discussion today. So Father, thank you. I love you, Lord. And we're just amazed by you. Your glory, your majesty, your goodness. Father, thank you for your grace. Lord, the fact that you love us when we don't deserve it, it's, it's, uh, it's remarkable. It's awe-inspiring, Lord. It's, it's transformative. Lord, I wish the whole world could know you the way that I do, Lord. And I know that I'm, I still have a ways to go. But if they could just see but a glimpse of your character, your goodness, Lord, it would change so much. And so, Lord, may we just get a deeper revelation of you today. May you download just to our hearts from your word. And Lord, may we leave here just imprinted by you and by your spirit in such a way that people, they literally see, they see you as we walk around. We love you, Lord. It's in your name. Amen. Can I walk around here? Does that mess up the mic? If I get down here, is that all right? Okay, perfect. It's good to see everybody here. First off, Pastor, thank you for having me. It's, it's an honor. Uh, anytime I get to come someplace and share the Word of God and, and share from my heart and, and what the Lord's done in me, uh, I consider it just a, a tremendous blessing. So thank you. Um, uh, Daniel and Kathy, you guys have just been incredible. I, I lost where you're at right now. You're here someplace. And, uh, but, but thank you so much. They've been great ministry partners with us. The second time I've come down and worked with them and, in some different things. And we're going to be doing the 50-day uh, fight tonight uh, in, in, I believe, Brandon. Uh, and so we're excited. Uh, Brandon the city, not let's go Brandon. That's a whole different thing. So I just want to be clear with that, especially since we're in church. Um, and and uh, also, Yvette, it's great to see you. Uh, she's, she's hosted me before uh, one of my other trips here in the past, and she's got a little uh, uh, prophet suite that would make Elijah and Elisha jealous there. So it, uh, uh, it, was, it was really great. So um, I, you know, as Pastor mentioned, I, I wrote a book called The Christian Left. Uh, it came out last year, and this, this was a book that I wasn't expecting to write. I was actually working on another book about influence, our church is called Influence Church, and I thought it would be really, would be really great to have a book called Inf you know, Becoming a Person of Influence or something like that. That'd be really great branding, and you know, as a pastor, I think about those things, right? And I, I started working on that, and the Lord just like stopped me. And my wife and I were going on vacation, actually down here to Florida. I get a lot of anointing when I'm down in Florida, apparently. So um, I was down here. We did our first cruise. This was before COVID and everything else, kind of right before that. And... and um, went, uh, uh, got on the cruise, was going to work on this book uh, on influence. I tend to write a lot on vacation in the mornings, and, and uh, we, had a, we had a, you know, small kind of room, but it had a balcony uh, on the ship, and I felt like Mark Twain. I was just sitting up there writing. It was just, a, just an awesome thing, and, and I wrote the first three chapters in this book, The Christian Left, on the ship, and I mean, they just flowed, and so if, if they, if, when you read them, you feel relaxed. That's why. I was on vacation when I, when I penned them, but... Um, <laughs> And, and uh, I had read an article on the way down just about the, the uh, uh, really the, the, the growth of progressive Christianity. Again, this is like in 2019 that I was writing this. So this is kind of before really, I mean, it, it's accelerated so much from where we are now. And in 2019, people kind of were like, Lucas, you're overdoing it a little bit. This isn't that big of a problem. This isn't really going on. And the Lord just kind of gave me insight into this. I'm, I'm from South Bend, Indiana. We're a red state, super majority, conservative, um, but, but we have a, a, I'm in a liberal county. And so it's where the University of Notre Dame is. It's a college town, uh, you know, Golden Dome. You have, you know, very strong Catholic presence, but it's a, it's a very progressive, very liberal Catholic presence. And, and let me be clear here, although I think I'm among friends and I'm safe in this, uh, my intention is not to be political today. I believe that as Christians, that you know, when that that it's our you know, we talk about this, this thing as separation of church and state. And let me just kind of clear this up. The, the first off, the the separation of church and state. Most of us probably know this. It has not. It's not in the Constitution. It's not present in the Constitution. Uh, it comes from you know Danbury uh, Baptist letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote. We could go back earlier than that though. And actually, thinkers like Martin Luther and especially John Calvin used to talk about the idea of the separation of church and state. They thought it was a good idea 
in a particular way. And that was this, is that the church should always be far enough away from the state that the state can never tell it what to do. That was their idea of the separation of church and state. And uh, the other flip side of that is that the church should, though, be close enough to the state in order to be her conscience. And we've gotten away from that. We've created this separation in many ways. And as you hear the left talk about the separation of the church and state, what they're really meaning is we don't want biblical values to impact our policies and to expose our policies for what they are. Okay? But in actuality, the left is actually looking for, they want the dissolution of separation of church and state, assuming that they can get the church to become the church that they want it to be, and that is the progressive church, the liberal church, a church that, um, that is bent upon, you know, basically bowing down to the state as God. You know, as believers, we believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. For the left, they have a trinity of their own, of, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, that's a trinity of the left. We could also say it this way, is that for the left, their, their sanctuary is the environment. See, the left doesn't know what they think yet about eternal life. They don't have a belief, really, in heaven and hell the way that we do. So they have to create a utopia on this earth. And basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to go back into the Tower of Babel. When you study out the story of the Tower of Babel, and I've read all sorts of accounts of this, not only obviously in, in Scripture from multiple translations, but we can also go to, there's the account of the Tower of, of, of Babel and Nimrod and these things. You can look in other ancient texts outside of the Hebrew people, and you can learn some things about that time period. And so what, what, we, what we discern is that there's this man, Nimrod. Many people believe he's also the same figure in the Epic of Gilgamesh that's kind of a legend about him. Okay, Nimrod was just a nickname for him. Scripture tells us that. And the nickname means hunter after God. And there's people that have read that and gone, oh man, I want to be a, I want to be a hunter after God. Now, I don't hear anybody go, I want to be a Nimrod, you know, because that doesn't sound very good, right? But, but they want to be a hunter after the Lord. I want to be hunting after the Lord. That's not what the word means in context. The word in context means one who hunts the Lord. And when you read the Epic of Gilgamesh in parallel with the story of the Tower of Babel, what you see is that Gilgamesh set out because uh, he was trying to pay revenge against a god that brought a global flood. And so he was a hunter after God to slay him. And so the Tower of Babel was built as sort of this, uh, uh, this, this place to protect the people against God. They didn't trust him. They didn't trust his word that I will never again flood the earth. They didn't see the justification that he had by, by recognizing that there was nobody re left righteous in all the land and that he, that he literally had to disrupt it. Or, and I believe if God wouldn't have flooded the earth, there wouldn't have been a virgin left for, for Jesus uh, uh, for, to be born through. The civilization was going in such a way, it was so destructive the Bible tells us in the end, it will be as a, the days of Noah. And so what we see here in the Tower of Babel is, is Nimrod builds a tower for the purpose of basically creating this safe haven, we could call it a safe space, for the people to protect them from God. And so God saw this, came down, scattered the language, of course, scattered everybody. But what is, what is, what is really uh, uh, anti-God uh, um, you know, uh, uh, people on this earth been trying to do since then? They've been trying to reconstruct the tower. And so now that tower is getting reconstructed through globalism. It's getting reconstructed by kind of one world you know, type of mindset. It's getting reconstructed by everybody saying the same thing. This is why cancel culture is what it is. See, cancel culture is really about that if you don't, it, that, that the left has a belief, and Hegel talked about this, we can go to philosophy and other places, that basically that the only way, according to Hegel, the only way that a true utopia would form is when the world works through all the conflict that it can, that exists, until they finally get to the point to where there's no more arguments left and there's no more conflict that happens. And at that point, according to Hegel, God will see the perfection in man, will realize the perfection in himself, and then basically he will repent and he will 
will form in sort of a, a, a uh, you know, mystic spiritual union with humanity for all eternity. That was Hegel's view, the German philosopher's idea of the utopia that would come about. He talked about Jesus, he talked about the Holy Spirit, he talked about God, but he was far from being a Christian. But he used the language, he hijacked the language, and it deceived a lot of people. So the utopia that we're trying to that we're seeing that, that the left is trying to build today is, 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 is specifically trying to create a realm where, where they have longevity, where they have protection. And at the end of the day, it's not logical, because life's a terminal experience. But they're going to hang on to it as long as they can. So as I was saying, their sanctuary is the environment. And I believe we should be a good steward of the environment. We should be better stewards of the environment of anybody. But what we're seeing through what's being pushed upon the people, you know, not in this country, but around the world, is, is such that it's, 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 a, it's a panic, it's an anxiety, it's, it's the sky is falling sort of mentality. And it, and it, 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 um, it, it denies the biblical idea that, first and foremost, that God watches over the affairs of this earth. That he has placed us here, and yes, we are stewards, and yes, we are doing these things, but at the end of the day, the, the, the sea is going to continue to do what it does. The, 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 you know, the laws of physics are going to continue to operate until the moment that God says so. For, for the progressive Christian, their sanctuaries, their environment, their method of worship is sexuality. We see this in all the pagan people in, in, uh, um, you know, throughout Scripture, all the nations that came against Israel. Sexuality was their method of worship. And I'll censor that a little bit for kids in the room today, but we, we you know, as adults, we know what that means. And what we see is this, this debaucherous lifestyle, this, this continue, you know, kind of pushing further and further the envelope. You know, I mean, it, it, just think back, those of you that, you know, I got a couple gray hairs in my beard here, but think back 10 years ago. Can you remember a time 10 years ago where you thought, man, growing up, I never thought it would be like this. And then you think five years later, man, I just never thought it'd be like this. And you think like two years after that, and you're really going, I never thought it would be like this in America. You know, after, after 2020 and COVID and everything that happened. And now today, what are we saying? I never thought it would be like this. Well, now I'm starting to wisen up. And what I'm realizing is it could get worse. Okay? And hopefully we're starting to see that. And in fact, if the church continues to be lame, if the church continues to do nothing, if pastors continue to stick their head in the sand, if people continue to deny the Word of God or be ashamed of the Word of God and lack timidity, it's going to get worse. Amen. I was looking at some stats here this week, and I've shared this one a lot over the, over the last year, but 24% is all that's left of Christians who attend church every single Sunday who believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God. 24%. So that means in churches across America, now I know that we're 100% in this room, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that to you, okay? It's, the, it's those other guys out there. They're the ones. But what that means is that 76, if you have a church of 100 people, 76 people in the room believe that the Bible is something less than the inspired, authoritative, infallible Word of God. Of pastors, only 41% of pastors across this nation hold a biblical worldview according to the Arizona Cultural Center uh, at Arizona Christian University and Dr. George Barna, who is the leading church statistician uh, in this nation. And 41% of pastors, it's only like 58% of senior pastors, they're a little better than most other pastors. And get this, kids pastors, children's pastors, it's only 13% of children's pastors have a biblical worldview in this country. 13%. And guess who's training up the next generation? And so what we see is that we have a problem. So the, the, the God is the, or the, um, the, uh, uh, the, the sanctuary is the environment. Uh, the method of worship is sexuality. And we could say this, the God is the state. When you look at, um, you know, when you look at a progressive church, and what do I mean when I say that? Because some people aren't exposed. There have been churches, and I, I have a show that, and this part of what you would have saw here on this video is, is, includes part of that, but uh, I have a show on Epoch Times or Epic Times, if you're familiar with the platform, everybody says it a little bit differently. Um, and so it's called Church and State. So it comes out every Wednesday night. You can watch it on there. We've released, I think, the first nine episodes or so, and uh, it's, it's going really well. Every episode we cover a different topic. 
uh, um, and you know everything from ESG to um, you know uh, drag queen story time in churches that are happening and uh, all the aftermath of attacks on churches after Roe, um, CRT. The, we cover the gambit on the show. It's it's fast paced. It's exciting. I think you enjoy it. So, um, but but you know we're seeing that that there's churches here in Florida, churches in Indiana where I live, uh, churches in in Pennsylvania, churches in New Jersey, New York. Uh, Wisconsin, that have all been holding drag shows at their campus. Churches. Churches. Now, it's starting to happen so frequently, I'm starting to ask, show me the money. Because I think that there's something happening there. And again, I'm not saying that is breaking news or that I have any proof on that. But we, when we start seeing trends like this, there's something behind it. And I want you to understand what's happening here. The left recognized... I think that they can't win elections as long as the church is united. Because for the time being, now it's a short window and that window is changing. The, the stats are showing that by the year, uh, uh, something like 20, 2050 to 2070, that you know, Christianity is in the minority in America at that point. You know, right now we still hold a majority. But by that time period, if, the, if things don't change, it's in the minority. And so we have a very short window very short window if we want to see things transform in this country. Do we understand that? And so, um, you know, when, when you see this, it's, it's frightening to really think about, you know, what this nation would look like. I mean, and so many other countries historically have depended upon America to fund missions, to support churches across the globe, all these sorts of things. If, if Christianity in America falters, then Christianity around the world is deeply impacted. Now, there's some people that go, oh, Lucas, God's in control. Don't worry about it. Oh, I love that conversation. I, I, and I, I, I've not talked to your pastor about this, and you can clean this up afterwards if, if I said something I'm not supposed to. But I believe that the phrase, and I have another book called Good God. I didn't bring any with me. But I believe the phrase that God is in control is one of the most, one of the most um, deceptive phrases in Christianity. Okay? And, and it comes from a misunderstanding of the book of Job. And, and really what I call this is it's an extreme sovereignty message. It's essentially a way to paralyze Christians and make them just think that they don't need to do anything, that God's got it all handled. You know, if you wouldn't have responded to the Lord and, and, and been willing to confess your sins, been willing to ask Him to be your Lord and Savior, what would have happened to your life? Now, if you're a Calvinist, you would go, well, I'd get saved anyways. He would do it. Okay, but I don't think I'm in a room with a bunch of Calvinists here this morning. And so I believe that what we have to understand here, the Bible, in fact, never says the phrase God is in control. Not in the scriptures. If you think it is, show it to me afterwards. I've been looking for a long time. I haven't found it yet. It says the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he's given to man. Now look, I believe that God is, is in control of the big picture, that he knows the beginning and the end, that he has his purposes he's going to bring about. When he went to King Saul, to, I mean, literally, we see in the, in the story of Saul that when Saul finally, you know, basically gets in rebellion against God and Samuel comes to him, what does Samuel say to him? Don't you know that if you would have listened to the Lord, if you would have followed in obedience, that, that you always would have had for all eternity a one of your descendants on the throne? He literally tells him that that the Christ would have came through Saul or, or yeah through Saul had Saul obeyed but he says instead I've chosen another so what does that mean is that God pivoted he wanted Saul was his first choice to bring about King Jesus there would have been some virgin in the line of Saul's family that God had already picked out but he says but because you did this I cannot trust your lineage to do this, and so therefore I've chosen another, and he chose it through David. Amen. See, the reality is, the way in which God is in control, if we want to say it that way, is that when I say no, he will go to somebody else who will say yes. He will accomplish the purpose intended that he had, but it doesn't mean that I always get to participate in it if I choose to walk in rebellion. We have this conversation about free will and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, is it, is it, does God choose everything that happens? Is it predestined and all this? Or do we have free will? I believe it's, it, it, we, we see it's, it's, it's actually not an either-or question. When I am walking in rebellion is when you see free will happen. That's when free will is evident. 
When I choose to do the thing that God has asked me not to do. When I walk in rebellion, because he doesn't will for that to happen. He doesn't, he doesn't will for anybody to sin. So when I walk in rebellion, you see free will. When I'm following the Lord, guess what? You sh- when somebody's truly following the Lord, you can't tell the difference between my steps and his steps. Because we're in step with each other. So when we're walking in him, it, it looks as if God's sovereign plan is the thing that's happening. Why? Because we have synced our hearts together in that. There's a Hebrew word for prayer that literally means wrapping oneself around something until it's like wrapping two ropes around each other so you get to the point to where you can't tell where one rope ends and the other one begins and they're so twisted together that's what we're doing when we go to the, that's what we build intimacy with him when we go to him in prayer we worship him we're wrapping ourselves around the lord till we get to the point to where we can no longer even conceive where we end where my desires end and his desires begin because i've wrapped myself around his desires in that way now, it's important. He's not wrapping himself around our desires. We're wrapping ourselves around his desires. Okay? That's what this is about. And so, you know, th- this idea that, you know, oh, don't worry about it. You know, God's got this. And whoever gets elected and all this sort of stuff doesn't matter. God's in control. That is a doctrine of demons when it's used that way. And I know so many people in the church hold on to that phrase. But I, I, and if you've said it, look, I got grace for you. I've said it myself. But let's shake, let's shake that off. Let, let's find something scriptural. Let's find something scriptural to hang on to. Um, and, and I thought that would go over about that well, so yeah. How to never get invited back. Step one. No, I, I, think you guys are, I think you guys are wise enough to get this. I think the Spirit of God is operating here. I want you to, to catch this. So when we, when we see this, that, that you know, the church in Europe at one time was thriving. Places like Italy and Germany were like major centers of Christian thought. What's happening there today? You're hard-pressed to find an evangelical church. You're hard-pressed to find a spirit-filled church in those, in those places. Well, is it God in control? See, God is in control, and he's going to see that, his, that this message gets through, but it doesn't mean that he does everything for us. It doesn't mean that we are always participating. It doesn't mean that the church in America can't falter. If the church in other places has faltered, it means that the church here can falter. And see, I'm on a mission to try to see that that doesn't happen. Now, let me tell you this. Like, anytime somebody thinks that by themselves they can like, save the church, that's concerning. I'm not here to save the church, but I am here to call my brothers and sisters in Christ to wake up and to return to a biblical framework. I'm not trying to make you a Republican or a Democrat. I'm trying to get you to return to a biblical framework. Because if you actually base your life upon the Word of God, what happens at the ballot is going to be fine. Okay? Because you'll realize your responsibility as a citizen. You'll realize what it means to to, to be, you know, a a responsible person in society, bringing good and and working with your hands and, 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 you know, treating those around you well. You'll you'll understand the rights that you have, you know, as a a citizen in this great nation of America. And when it comes to social issues, you won't have any problem because you'll be able to line those up to the Word of God. The problem is, you know, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit will remind believers of everything that Jesus has taught us. Well, the problem is if we've never read what Jesus has taught us, he doesn't have much to work with. And so we have a lot of Christians that don't know the word of God. And so the Holy Spirit's trying to like prompt and remind us of things. And he, there's like, it's just a, it's like a, it's like a, a broken synapse. He can't take us anywhere because we don't know it. We're not sure. We have parents that, that don't know what it means to raise kids. And because they weren't taught by the generation before them. We have Christians, we have, I mean, the other, I sat next to a guy on the plane on the way down here, you know, talking about, hey, what do you do, what do you do? Ends up telling me, he goes, well, I, I play, uh, he goes, I'm a, I'm a vocal coach and I play, you know, um, piano and organs in churches. I was like, oh, that's cool, I'm a pastor. He goes, yeah, my husband does it too. I thought, and I was just everything in me to not go, ah, okay. <laughs> you know, and here's an accomplished guy, he's traveling, he's flying like me, getting hired someplace to go play, perform, and the majority of his income he makes by going to churches and playing music. And look, I, I believe that the church should be a place where anybody can show up. And I, I don't care what background you came into this room from. But here's what I won't do. I will not change the word of God for anyone. I won't change, I won't change the word of God for myself. 
And there's sometimes I wish I could. You know, I don't like that verse, Lord. No, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to change the Word of God for anyone. The Word of God stands eternal. It is sure. It is true. That any moment that my lifestyle, my actions, my thoughts, my desires contradict what I find in the Word of God, that's a problem. That's a problem. And we have a choice at that moment to try to bend the Word to fit our needs or to try to or, or to do the right thing, which is to submit our life to the Word of God in such a way that it transforms us. And the cool thing about God's Word is He doesn't, he doesn't make us do that on our own. He's given us the Holy Spirit to, to guide us, to comfort us, to empower us. He's given us His grace in our life, which says, says in Titus 2, 11 and 12, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions in this life. He's equipped us so that we don't have to do it. By, not to mention He's given us an amazing community and fellowship of believers that we can lean on during tough times. I understand when people fall into struggles and, and temptations and they're, they're battling stuff, but we can't let that get us to the point to where we go, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. That's a frightening thing. And I'll tell you, the, the church, uh, I, I, was, I was thinking about the, the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah became grieved because he looked at his own people, and he looked at the state of the city of Jerusalem, specifically the, the, the walls around Jerusalem, and he was saddened because he saw how fragile they'd become, how broken down they'd become, and we read throughout the whole book of Nehemiah that he goes on a mission to rebuild the walls. And I feel like in some ways, you know, and, and I'm not certainly the only one doing this, there's, there's thankfully an army of, of people that God's raising up to do this, but in a small way, I feel like that that's part of the call on my life right now, is to go to the church and say, guys, our gates have become broken down. We're letting stuff into our church that never should have been allowed to start with, but because the gate has been weakened and because the guards are asleep, it's easily found its way in and entered in. And we have to rebuild the walls. Now, I believe the only way we're going to you know, effectively rebuild the walls is if we find a way to do it together in unity. Let me talk a little bit about doctrine. Um, and, and this is in my book, The Christian Left. Um, and you know, it's, it's always hard when you, you, know, you have 30 minutes, 45 minutes, something like that to kind of unpack. And you want to just tell some, you know, again, like I taught, it wasn't eight hours, but it was a long time. <laughs> it was a long time that I spoke at that event. And, and, uh, and, and, I, and I could, I could go through it. We could build on precept by precept and you know, ha have time for every single verse to share that. And you know, when, when it's a short period of time, you want to figure out how do I just, how do I take all this and get this into you in a way in which that you can actually run with it and understand it. And it doesn't leave you kind of going, man, that was all over the place. Um, and that's always the risk, you know, but, but the, the um, you know, when we look at this, I believe that it's so important that we understand something about doctrine that I believe many people miss, and that is that there is a, that, that I believe that what we see in Scripture and, and really um, throughout kind of the history of Christianity over the last 2,000 years is that there is what I would call primary doctrine and secondary issues, okay? So now people that are very zealous for the Lord, and I appreciate their zeal, but I think that it gets them in trouble sometimes, is they will say something like, well, there's no such thing as a secondary doctrine. They're all primary. And I understand what people mean by that, but the danger that runs into is it puts ourselves in a position of arrogance that we assume that I perfectly understand every single verse, every single teaching, every single precept that's in Scripture 100%, and I don't have any flaws in my viewpoint, so therefore my views are primary, and everything that I hold to is right, and that if anybody disagrees with the way that I see it, exactly how I see it, then, then th that they're the ones who are you know, heretics and you know, going to hell in gasoline underwear. You know, that's kind of the, the thing, okay? And... and uh, and so that's, that's, that's I, I, I just don't think there's any humility in that position. Look, I, I believe everything that I believe is right. That I wouldn't stand up here and teach you something if I didn't think it was true. But in humility, I like what the one pastor said of 15% of what I teach is wrong. I'm just not sure which 15% it is yet. Okay? And so... You know, in humility, we recognize that we're all growing, we're all learning in the Lord, all these sorts of things. We never, none of us do things perfectly. And so, but, but what do I know that I know that I know 100%? I know that Jesus is Lord. I know that, that he was both human and divine. 
Okay? I know that God is the creator. I know that there was a virgin birth. I know that Jesus rose from the dead. I know that the Bible is God's word. I don't have any question about these things. Um, I know that there's a heaven and a hell. I know that Jesus paid the price on the cross for our sins. And that by faith in him that we received a free gift of righteousness and the gift of eternal life. I know that the believers, uh, uh, that the, the mysteries that's been kept hidden for ages and generations past is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that, that there is an indwelling of the Holy Spirit that exists, that transforms our life. Um, uh, you know, I could go on with some of these doctrines, but you know, most of the time, I mean, I'll go to groups of youth ministries sometimes and, and students and say, tell me what the primary doctrines are, and they're usually really good at it. But what are things that are secondary? You know, and if I were to have everybody raise their hand, my guess is we could pull these out, but, but for sake of time, you know, churches have different views about things like music. Now, I like music in church, but I'm not offended if a church doesn't want to have music in church, assuming that they hold to primary doctrine. That's their prerogative. If they believe that that's what Scripture teaches, and they can show their verses, and other people show their verses, and that sort of thing, I'm not going to fight with them about that. We're going to spend eternity together. I'm not going to fight with you about the type of music that you listen to, assuming that it's glorifying God. Okay? Um, and, and so, you know, that's a, that's a secondary idea. There's churches, and I don't, I, I, I'm always careful with this one because I never know where everybody stands on it, but, man, women in ministry. That's a, that's a major conversation. And you have churches, typically more on the reform side, that basically say, hey, there's, you know, the Bible says women shall be silent. You know, and, and I always say, when does that start? In the parking lot? In the lobby? Just when they're sitting in the pews? When they come on the stage? Like, when are we starting that? So I want to make sure I got my ushers out there with a clock to make sure that, like, okay, now, you know, their time. And uh, you can imagine probably where I sit on the, on the equation. But, um, you know, like, I can talk about that passage biblically. I could actually, if this were like a debate, I could, I could play the part of the person who believes that women shouldn't be allowed to teach. And I could play that part biblically using scriptures and use the argument that they would use. Now, I also have a scriptural argument that I use to show that that's not what Paul was saying there as an entirety thing, the meaning that women can never talk in church or that they can never teach. In fact, we see all sorts of examples contrary, which is one of the reasons we know that. And here's a biblical argument why I believe that women are, you know, uh, uh, they, there's a reason Eve was pulled from Adam's side and not from his feet so he could walk on her. Okay, and so biblically I can go through that. Now, this other group will look at me and go, you're a heretic for saying those things because they've confused secondary doctrine with primary doctrine. And here's what happens, although I have grace for them. Like I, I, literally, I have so many you know, great friends that are reformed and, and, and you know, we love each other. I minister in some of their churches sometimes and they like hate this view that I have about women in ministry. And to me, it's not something that we're not, we're not trying to like push. It's not like I'm like going, you know, ladies, you need to rise up to be senior pastors and buck the man, you know, sort of thing. But, but I'm just, I believe that, that there is, that God calls people to do things. And, and there's, there's gifts that I see that are undeniable in, in women. And I believe the church needs to hear these voices. And so, but this is, this is, this has robbed us of unity on the main issues because we're fighting about secondary things. I refuse to allow what a church believes about women in ministry to create any separation for me. I'll go minister to them either way. I'm not going to force my view on them, although I feel like I did a little bit this morning. Broke my rule. Um, but but, but I, am, I want to see unity happen for the sake of the gospel. I'm going to spend eternity with these people. Why would I fight with them over this issue? If they want to know my thoughts, if they're open to a, to a genuine conversation, if they want to ponder on these things together and grow together, study these things out, I'm there for it all day long. But I'm not going to fight with them over it. Because there's too much at stake. There's too, while the church is inward fighting, the world's just going, man. I mean, like, I mean you know, as, as one pastor says, the devil's you know, taking our lunch and popping the bag. I mean, he's just like, he's, he's stealing our lunch, he's popping the bag. He doesn't care. Because we're focused on all this other stuff, on these micro issues, and then the whole while the macro is falling apart. 
When we have pastors that don't believe that the Bible is wor the word of God, why would I get bent out of shape about whether or not somebody believes once saved, always saved, or you might be able to lose your salvation through a willful intent of the heart? Are you planning on doing something to lose your salvation? Because unless you are, we don't even really need to focus on that conversation. We just need to believe that God's grace is sufficient for our life. And man, isn't it a great thing to be in the house of the Lord and to continue to follow him? I'm not planning on going anywhere. I'm pursuing Jesus. If you have some micro differences on that issue, I don't care. Now, do I have an opinion? Oh, yes, I have an opinion. I'm not saying that there's not an issue that's fun to discuss or study or that there's not truth there or it doesn't have some impact on your Christian life. It certainly it does. But when the house is getting robbed, I don't care what color your socks are. I just want you to come help me fight the intruder. Okay? I'm not worried about those things. And so we can look at women in ministry, once saved, always saved. Uh, uh, we can look at things like spiritual gifts. You know, are they active today? Are they not active today? Um, but man, I'm not going to let these things disrupt the fellowship of believers. And I, I really think that in some ways the onus is on us as spirit-filled, freedom-loving Christians. Some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are going to be a little bit more narrow-minded. Okay? And, and we, have to, we have to just exhibit grace towards them, and we have to be okay when they're a little standoffish with us. But we have to keep fighting for unity. I don't want to fight with somebody. I want to be in unity. Some, I had friends who said it this way. One of my mentors, he said, that there's a difference between agreeing and agreement. We can choose to get in agreement with one another, even if we don't agree on every issue. But if, 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 and this is why it's so important you understand this, when people start departing from the, 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 tr the primary essential truths of God's word, these are not it's not debated on whether or not Jesus was Lord. There's not one Christian in history that's ever been recognized and gone, well, this guy didn't believe in Jesus was, Jesus was Lord, but he was a great Christian man. This is not a choice. Christianity is not a choose-your-own-adventure. There are, there are some doctrines that, you know, just because of our ability to interpret the word in original language that we can, you know, talk through. But there are things that are clear. And I believe that these are the things that are under attack in our nation and in the church and we have to, we have to reestablish the foundations, begin to rebuild the walls if we want to see Christianity in this nation thrive, and ultimately if we want to see freedom in this country continue to exist. Um, I want to share a little bit of the word from you here so you know I'm saved. Um, <coughs> take a look here. 1 Timothy 4. says this, I'm going to read now the uh, Christian standard on this one. It says, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. I mean, we had two major pastors in America, one in Texas who invited Beto O'Rourke to come and campaign at their church, and one in Atlanta that brought in Stacey Abrams to campaign at their church. And this is happening. Now, look, I, I'm not saying that every single Republican candidate, we should march them into the church. There are, there are people that, you know, look, there's, there's godlessness that can exist in both parties and does. Okay? I'm not, I'm not here. I don't, I don't get paid by the Republican Party to travel the country and talk about Jesus. But, but when you look at the policies and the platforms that are there, I think it becomes very evident what, what has uh, more alignment with kingdom ideas and what doesn't. Okay? Um, there are doctrines of de demons and deceitful spirits that exist in this world, and some of them are in the religious. I mean, the, the two major uh, heresies to face the early church, one was the Gnostics, which would probably be much more similar to our progressives today, and the other heresy, actually the first heresy to face the church, was the Judaizers that were, that were uh, um, uh, uh, Pharisees who got the, uh, um, you know, an element of the gospel of Jesus, but they continued to utilize kind of this, this religious uh, uh, legalistic framework and try to apply that into Christianity. And we see those extremes today. You see error in progressive ideas, and you see error in fundamentalist ideas. How do you avoid that? By grace and truth. 
The Bible says that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So if you want to learn how to not fall into error, all you have to do is learn how to embrace both grace and truth. If you elevate a concept of grace over truth, you'll become a progressive every time. It's what we call the bleeding heart. You know, it's, it's the, the empaths, the empathetic person. If you elevate a concept of grace, because, well, I know that that's not right, but I just, I just feel bad for them, so I want to treat them this way. And I don't want to put them in a situation where they feel uncomfortable, so we can't talk about that. I just heard of a major conservative, min, or a major conservative it's not a ministry, it's a uh, conservative um, um, group, that one of their, one of their uh, staffers just told me, like, hey, I just want you to know, like, this is a national thing, conservative. I just want you to know that we're being told to, to basically remain neutral on the issue of homosexuality. And they're, they're pushing a lot of biblical values in other areas, but they said that one, leadership is afraid of how it's going to go, so we're being told to remain neutral about it. And because they're trying to fight other battles, and they're, they're afraid of that one. Now, I'm not here to judge, you know, what's going on there, but, like, this is a conservative, Christian-minded group that this is happening. You know, we have to recognize that, that, you know, we have people that are trying to pick and choose the Word of God, and they're afraid of culture. Timidity will destroy the church. Timidity will destroy the pastor. There are pastors who have gone to the left. There's pastors that just don't know, they don't want to be political, this sort of thing. But I believe we have a lot of pastors that they know the truth, but they're afraid to talk about it. And those, that, those are the sleepy giants that I'm trying to awaken. And I'm not just going to travel the country and call them names and yell at them, but I'm going to say, you know what? Brother, rise up. Gideon, get out of the wine press. There's a battle to fight. Come on, Come on. that's right. Goes on here. It says these people, they forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude for those who believe and, and uh, know the truth. I won't get into that one today. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving since it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. One of your greatest tools to overcoming um, uh, deception is thanksgiving. is thanksgiving. It's thankfulness. It's gratitude. When you walk in gratitude, it's really hard to get deceived. Because you have to constantly give your thought back to the Lord. When you get out of gratitude, it's when you lose sight of what God's doing, and it's much easier to end up in humanistic thinking. He goes on, he says, If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed. Paul actually encourages us to point these things out to people. We go to churches, they're like, well, you can't talk about that. Right. Don't, don't say anything about that. Paul tells Timothy, no, tell them when they talk about these things, it's good. It does, this, now, the danger whenever I teach on this stuff is that I'm going to weaponize you to be a jerk. That's the reality. I, and I, that's, a, that's, a, that's a sober thought that I have. I am not trying to rile you up just so you go around and start beating people over the head with statistics and how my pastor said, you're timid and you're, uh, you know, got your head in the sand. And I, that's, that's not what I'm trying to do. Our greatest weapon that we have, two greatest weapons we have, uh, and we could say the three greatest weapons this way, is the Word of God, our testimony, and the love of God. And, and those, that is the prime, and of course, we could talk about prayer, we could talk about all these different things, but, but we have to learn how to, how to fight and still love. And that's where grace and truth comes in. We, and it's not bending truth so that like, okay, we need a little bit of truth and a little bit of love. No, 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 no. I want the faucet on like full on love. And I want the faucet on like full over here on truth. We're not going to bend on either one of them. We're going full on with both of these things. We refuse to bend on either side. Because the moment you let one of those things be turned down, that's when you tip either to become a Judaizer or a Gnostic. He goes on, he says, but have nothing to do with the pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. Uh, one translation says, but have nothing to do with old wives' tales. I always say this is the first reference to fake news in the Bible. 
He says, for the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You will never regret any time that you spend in order to train yourself to become godly. This is not works-based salvation. We're not trying to earn anything from God. This, our salvation is by, by, uh, uh, by grace, through faith. But we know, and all that we've received, the gift of righteousness, that is His righteousness over our lives, we know there's benefit in training our life to, to add up to that in holiness, in godliness. It says, this saying is trustworthy, deserves full acceptance. For this reason we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. He goes, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone despise your youth. And let me add this, don't let anybody despise your old age either. Okay? But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. That's what we're doing today. Don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy and the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Practice these things. Be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. The progress that the left talks about, and it's really Marxism. And again, this isn't about Republican or Democrat. Democrats like our, our dinosaurs. They don't even exist anymore. They got extinct. They got, they got absorbed by the leftist party. There's a couple of them left that like, are still pro-life Democrats. They just like unions. Like, I, I don't have any beef with them. But what we're seeing is that we're seeing there's a conservative thread in this country and there's a Marxist thread now in this country. And the Marxist thread believes that progress comes by destroying everything that there is and rebuilding. And the conservative thread says there are good foundations that are here and we need to strengthen those and we need to build upon them. Okay? One wants to tear everything down to start over. The other one says, no, there are good godly principles here that we have to move forward with. Uh, this is literally one reason why I believe Hollywood remakes every movie. It's because they want you to forget the values of the one that existed before. So now, you know, they can make it look a new way. I mean, just look at the evolution of a character like Batman, who started like Adam West, like he was like a Boy Scout. And now he's like, you know, this vengeful justice, you know, going to, you know, kill everybody that he can't. He's dark, right? Because it's, they, it's, it's changed the values in a generation. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing these, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I, I just want to spend just a little bit of time here. Again, it's, I know this is, to me, it feels rushed. It feels fast. It feels like there's a lot of information we're trying to get across. But I, I want to, I you know, look, this is, we have an election. We have all these sorts of things. And, man, everybody knows what's going on with the election. They know, they, this, they know what you need to do, the importance. You're hearing this. That's, I, I'm, that's not why I'm here. I'm here because I know that regardless of what happens at election, if the church falls apart, we don't have any hope anyways. And I'm more concerned, and, and please don't hear, I, I'm concerned about the election. But I'm more concerned with your election in Christ. I'm more concerned with your election in Christ. Because if you get solidified in that, and you really get a revelation of what it means that Christ lives on the inside of me, that I got the Holy Spirit, I got wall-to-wall -wall Holy Ghost, I'm walking around. That's transformative. I had somebody the other day, they came up to me and they said, Do you, what's the glitter on your eyes? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and it kind of weirded me out. He's like, well, I see this like glitter on your eyes. And I'm like, I don't know. And he like took a picture of me and then he like, had me look at it. He's like, don't you see this here? And I'm like, I'm like, I don't see anything. And he's like, I see your eyes. They're just glowing. And, like, and at the end of the day, I just said, like, man, all I could say is, I got the Holy Spirit on the inside of me, so you might be seeing a little bit of him leak out. That's all I got for you. Because <laughs> I didn't put any glitter on my eyes today, or any day for that matter. And so, like, look, the, the world sometimes sees Christ in you more than you can see it when you look in the mirror. But if you could see what the enemy sees when he sees you, you wouldn't be timid anymore. 
You would, you would rise up. You would know what you need to do. You would grow in your faith. You would become a powerful just, just instrument for God in this realm. I'm going to pray for us here today. Thank you, Lord. If you're ready just to, just to be a world changer, have God use you uh, just in a new way, just go ahead and raise your hands up. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. I just pray over this family of God here today, Lord. I just thank you for them. Father, I pray that you would impart wisdom and revelation, Lord, that you would give them just a spirit of boldness, Lord, that the spirit of timidity would just be eradicated in this body. Father, I pray that, um, uh, that just mighty warriors would rise up. Lord, with, with the weapons of their warfare, with prayer and the word of God and the love of God and the truth of God, at their, at, at, at just at, ready at all times so that they can give an answer, so that they can minister, so that they can pray, so that they can pray for healing, so they can heal the sick, they can see them recover. And Lord, I pray for builders in this room. People who see just the, the, the gates of the city that have been torn down. Lord, I even drive around this town here, Lord, and I see that there's been an invasion even in this city. And Lord, I pray that, that, that favor would come upon the people of God in such a way that finances would flow, that, that opportunity would flow. I just Even right now, I think about the story of, of Nehemiah, and he literally went to decision makers and influential people in order to get support and letters and move things around so that he had the resources that he needed to accomplish the task. And Lord, we say we need resources. Go ye therefore is expensive. And Lord, we thank you in advance for providing the resources to rebuild the gates of the church. And Lord, thank you for every single person in this room that's part of that. May we experience a greater unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, may you lead us. We're not here to bow to anyone else's God, Lord, but you. You're the king, and I'm not. We love you, Lord. We love you, we love you, we love you, and we thank you that you love us. Bless you, Lord. Let's give the Lord a hand.